So I want to continue what I started last week and very arbitrarily um, uh, based on, on their, the dates of their deaths, uh, going through some interesting uh, people you may never hear in church usually, some saints. So I've chosen these people because uh, they died on that day. So we started with, on Tuesday, Ebhard Arnold, his uh, death day. And he reminds us, because each of these people, they're not just, I wanted to show you that the kingdom of God, the church, is made up, constituted by all sorts of varieties and differences. But these are important, if you like, stones in the kingdom. So what is, did Eberhard Arnold, if you listened or you came, remember he was that uh, Lutheran pastor who had a great peace witness and fell foul of the Nazis and started the Brudhof, which you can visit today in New South Wales. And, and it's around, uh, around the world now. Thousands of Protestants who make that deep commitment um, to chastity, obedience, and poverty. So Eberhard Arnold, of course, died in 1935. The Gestapo after him, um, and lots of excitements. The Bruderhof are an extraordinarily interesting community. So that was, for me, reminded me of the deep, not just peace witness, but the communitarian witness. Look, dear brothers and sisters, we need to have that deep commitment to one another. Remember Acts. There's a lovely passage in Acts that says about people sharing their possessions. And then the church grows. And that is the witness of the early church. If you look at any of the early church fathers or, or their dissenters, the Romans who criticised them, the church grew because of that. So that community. And secondly, um, uh, Miguel Pro. You remember? Sobrero, yes? Making everyone laugh. Do you remember that? And his very much strong emphasis on the Lordship of Christ in that time, yes, in, in Mexico, when um, the politicians were uh, really persecuting the church. So there was him. And then John Lafarge, that Jesuit who uh, got the American magazine going. And so Miguel Pro about the Lordship of Christ, but um, John Lafarge very much on equality. Do you remember all, all in, that encyclical he contributed towards on, uh, against anti-Semitism? And he worked on racial justice. And I mentioned, when I met, talked about John Lafarge, someone he worked with. That's today's saint um, I want to talk about. Not officially a saint, but a saint in God's eyes. It was a lovely introduction about may God's holy ones, and she is definitely one of those. Then I did Isaac Watts and music, because one of the hallmarks of the people of God is music and singing together. So we've got this communitarian sense, following the Lordship of Christ, deep commitment to equality amongst us, deep commitment, which is why um, clericalism is a curse on the church. Absolutely. Absolutely, we are one, brothers and sisters, together in Christ. And then Isaac Watts. So two Catholic, two Protestants, actually. All of them um, well-known. Isaac Watts, remember, was a dissenter. 600 hymns he wrote. And some of the ones we sing even to this day. A great, interesting guy. You know, his father was been imprisoned by the church uh, and the establishment because he, he was a dissenter. Like my forebears, they were all dissenters, my forebears. So that's that. So then, then do you remember Sojourner Truth? Because I told you another hallmark of the church, take courage from this, is not many strong, not many wise, not many powerful. And who was she? Sojourner Truth was that black woman, a slave, abused, treated shamefully, illiterate, and she helped change 
the United States, she had a prophetic gift and God called her. Sojourner Truth, a powerful witness, a witness to that, that aspect. Now I want to talk about somebody else who died on, in 1980. So uh, today is what, the 29th of November? Yep, so she died on the, this is entirely arbitrary, but you can see I've chosen them. These are genuine hallmarks of the kingdom of God. And this one I love, this person, just extraordinary. I hope you, you know about her. Her name is Dorothy Day, okay? She is extraordinary, Dorothy Day, really wonderful. So she died, she was 83 when she died, the 29th of November, uh, 1980. And when she died, she was observed, she was the most influential, interesting, and significant figure in the history of American Catholicism. That's probably not true, but, you know, it, it's, she is those things. And I certainly read her as a Protestant, and she inspired me. She inspired me, Dorothy Day, very much. So she was extraordinary. She started um, the Catholic Worker, a lay movement, which she founded in 1933, and oversaw for nearly 50 years. Um, it was an effort to show the radical commandment of love. So what does she show us and remind us? What rock or stone does she bring to the kingdom of God, to the church? A definite, definite commitment to those on the margins, on the poor. That's what she does. She reminds us of that. Uh, my wife and I have tried to serve and follow that, um, that service of the poor. And Dorothy is one of those people who spoke to our lives deeply, that deep commitment to the poor. And it's something that was very ecumenical, very ecumenical. If you know the, the Catholic worker, I don't know if any of you have ever seen it, that, that journal they put out. Fritz Eichenberg was one of their artists. He's a Quaker. You might have known the woodcut, Christ of the Breadlines. You might know it from, from your work. It's extraordinary art. So a journal for the poor, about the poor. She represented, if you like, a new type of political holiness, a way of serving Christ, not only through prayer and sacrifice, but through genuine solidarity with the poor and in the struggle along paths of justice and peace. So she was called a communist in her day. She was shot at. She was jailed. She was constantly being harassed and investigated by the FBI. Constantly. She said she didn't seem to care. The servant is not greater than their master. That's what she said. And on the other hand, there were many who liked to call her a saint, and that annoyed her. She said this. When they call you a saint, it means basically you're not to be taken seriously. <laughs> well, we do do that, don't we? We want saints up here. Oh, we're not like them. Oh, yeah, they're there, but I'm me. You know, I'm just normal. They're not. It's not true. Um, Leon Bloy, wonderful writer, extraordinary man, who influenced Jacques Maritain and some fantastic people. He said the only sadness in life is not to be a saint. Do you know that expression? That's, it's true. We've all got to aspire to be like those, those saints. Um, she paid for her vocation. This is it, you see. To follow Christ is to follow the way of suffering. Every one of us have got to make that real in our lives. I don't know how, but each of you have got to do that. Got to work out your salvation, as it says in the scriptures, in fear and trembling, in suffering. Um, 
She was born in Brooklyn in 1897, though she was baptised as an Anglican Episcopalian, right? It's the same today. People are baptised Catholic and they don't take their faith very seriously or don't grow up in the faith or don't know anything about the faith. She was the same. You can find them everywhere in our country, in Australia. They're everywhere around the, around the world. People are baptised and she was like that. Little exposure to religion. And by the time she'd got to college, she'd rejected Christianity because she had this radical heart and she didn't think the church was bothered. She dropped out of school, worked as a journalist in New York, New York with um, all sorts of radical papers and took part in popular protests. Her friends were the communists, the anarchists and various bohemian types. My first exposure, really, to Catholic theology was I decided, because I'd been trying to work in a poor area, to look at liberation theology. And it's often damned and condemned because it's Marxist. But sometimes we should hear some of those voices and not reject it so out, out of hand and think, oh, just think about the martyrs in El Salvador. Just think about some of those people who gave their lives in Latin America for the poor and for the church. So my first exposure was people like Sobrino and uh, Segundas and these wonderful people who taught me that the Catholic Church has an option for the poor. And I know you might have heard criticism about that, but I'm here as a Catholic priest thanks to that witness of these people in South America. And she was caught up in some of that. We so easily reject. Remember that passage I brought you in Luke 9 and Mark 9 about if they're not for me, if, if they're not against me, they're for me. And that's true of people serving the poor. So that's it. In 1926, a turning point. A turning point in her life. She was living in Staten Island with a man she deeply loved, and she became pregnant. So she's not married, and she became pregnant. That event sparked a mysterious conversion in her. Something of the numinous, the luminous, the the other. She caught up. How many of us have had the blessings of children? And all you ladies have children have been there at the birth. But gentlemen, when you've been there too, doesn't it fill you with wonder? It is such a blessing, such an extraordinary thing. And that birth experience changed her life. And she began to think about God, began to think about the mystery of life. It's extraordinary, wonderful thing. And um, it turned her heart to God. So she decided, wonderfully, in 1926, so you can just think about this person, with all these bohemian alternative friends, you know what she did? She decided to get her child baptised as a Roman Catholic. She's not a Catholic. Because somehow she knew the mystery and the wonder of Christ was present in the church, in the Catholic church. So she got her child baptised in 1926. And she couldn't stay outside for long. So she got baptised and followed in 1927. Does it fill your heart with joy? Isn't it beautiful? So she followed. And of course, her, her common-law partner didn't like it. And there's the first big sacrifice she made. She chose to follow Christ in the church with her child and to leave him, or he left her. And that's tragic. Tragic. But that's what happened. And um, he had no use for marriage because he thought it was, you know, 
just something that people did, a tradition. But she believed, she wanted to marry, she wanted to be with this person she loved. So she had to leave. Lots of people had those difficult decisions in their relationships. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But she chose Christ. And it isn't, please me, believe me, choosing Christ doesn't mean rejecting relationships like, say, well, like Kierkegaard or something. Actually, it's about affirmation of life, which is what she saw in her child. Because for, for me, and what about you, dear couple, on your wedding anniversary? Isn't it a yes to Christ, to yes to your partner? Isn't it? It's not Christ over here and a relationship over there. Remember, I told you before, in the Garden of Eden, it is not good that man should be alone. It's nothing to do with a fall. It's not after the fall we get married. It's before the fall, go forth and multiply. So it's there. It's in our hearts. And the yes to Christ is yes to the neighbour, who might be your partner. And it's always got to be a yes. That's why our religion is grounded. It's not about a sort of spirituality that's sort of out there and hovering around and sort of just sitting in the quiet always. It's rooted at the kitchen sink. If you think it isn't, do you know Brother Lawrence? Yes? Brother Lawrence did this wonderful meditation on practice of presence of Christ. And do you know what they made him do? Wash up. So who likes washing up? You can practice the presence of Christ. You just do it because you don't need a lot of brain to clean a plate. It's about yes and amen. Yes and amen. It's not about having a sort of strange life. It's a yes and an amen. She's had this radical commitment, and she started praying at that time in, uh, in 1927, after she became a Catholic. Lord, what shall I do with my life? I know that's in some of your hearts. Lord, what should I do with my life? And she cared so much for the poor. And the church, though, in so many ways, is a home to the poor. There's difficulties because so often the church identifies with the status quo, with the oligarchs. That's what I discovered when I did my Latin American theology. The church is sometimes we have wonderful saints who understand. And there's others who like the power and the privilege. And they identify with the oppression. It happened, always happens. But we know where Christ is, Christ for the poor. Then in 1932, I don't know if you've ever had these encounters, Somebody called Peter Morin appeared. Dreadful, thick accent. <laughs> you know, this guy you wouldn't give time to. I wouldn't. I'd think, oh, I can't understand a word you're saying, mate. <laughs> so Peter Morin, this Canadian, French-speaking, strange prophet, appeared, brought by God, and helped Dorothy Day orientate her life in a particular way. And together, they worked together, and they set up the Catholic worker. God, can you just see these two people? One with an illegitimate so-called child, right? And Peter Morin, scruffy, like a hobo, speaking with a French accent. Oh, Lord, you wouldn't bet anything on these two. But they have changed the world. Catholic worker houses are everywhere. And this is a period when they, the, the country of America needed it. Remember the Great Depression? People throwing themselves out on tops of, you know, money meant nothing. Germany, barrels of, of, of marks to buy a loaf of bread. The whole world in chaos. So she starts this radical um, 
ministry for the poor with, with him, Peter Mohan. Now, I've set up a homeless charity. It's called In Churches Bradford. You can Google it, In Churches Bradford. And I loved that when I did that work. I absolutely loved it. And I tell you the thing it taught me. Do not judge the poor. Do not do it. When you see a person on the streets, don't assume, oh, they're a drug addict. Oh, they're a waster. I've served, as you know, I've told you, in the British Army, and a lot of the people on the streets are squaddies. They've lost their way. Have compassion. Have the heart of Christ. Have, have the heart, if you like, of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and see in them Christ. Because we, too, if you, you don't believe that of yourselves, you've got no imagination, I'll tell you, you could leave this place, you could be knocked over, hit your head, and suddenly lose yourself and lose everything. I've seen it happen. You know, life is more precarious than, than, we, than we know. My mum used to say, life is about one foot on the grave and the other on a banana skin. <laughs> you know, you kind of, it's life, it just happens to you. Lots of you have had shocking things happen in your life you did not expect. I know that from, I've made friends with some of you. So these two started this um, Catholic worker movement. Um, but it didn't just end with works of mercy. Because she was concerned with the Sermon on the Mount. And just like Arnold, she had the uncompromising commitment to nonviolence. Just think about these two. Dorothy Day, during the Second World War, is committed to nonviolence. Ebhard Arnold, during the Second World War, is committed to nonviolence. I don't think I'd have followed them in there. But you've got to admire it. So this caused her endless trouble. Endless trouble. And, she, and then in, she took part in numerous civil disobedience campaigns against the spirit of the Cold War and the perils of nuclear war. And social protests in the 1960s became almost commonplace. Her peacemaking witness, rooted, where, was her, where did she get it from? It was rooted in her daily life of prayer, of liturgy and prayer. It gave her a particular credibility and challenge. The enigma of Dorothy Day was her ability to reconcile her radical social positions, she called herself an anarchist as well as a pacifist, with a traditional and almost conservative piety. Have you any idea who her favourite saint was? A top of the list saint. This will be amazing to you. Do you know? Therese of Lisieux. Isn't that a wonderful? I remember once when I was on the edge of becoming Catholic and I'd read Therese and to be honest, I didn't really get it very much, but she was calling me. I could tell you stories about how Therese has, has come to me and called me. Once out of hospital, once when I was thinking about being a priest, really radically. But I was, I was at this ecumenical gathering and this chap, this Anglican vicar said, he made disparaging comments about Therese. And I shut him up by saying, well, do you know that she is the favorite saint of Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton? He couldn't accept that. She is wonderful. Therese of Lisieux is a beautiful saint. Because why? She didn't write any great academic treatise because Day understood it's rooted in the day-to-day. -day. It's sorting it out in community. Isn't that right, sister? Those irritating sisters you're with. <laughs> Doesn't she help? Her spirituality, when your marriage is annoying you, you know, your partner's done it again, why doesn't he pick up his socks? <laughs> Therese will help. Why doesn't your son wash up a cup? Therese will help. 
You know, why won't, uh, I don't know, your friend uh, put out the rubbish? Therese will help. Isn't that true? She is a beautiful saint. And I'm here because of Therese. I don't mean this church, but you know what I mean. Yeah. She's a, so um, she understood that. That young Carmelite nun, whose little way indicated the path to holiness with all those daily preoccupations and occupations. We understand it with the socks and the rubbish bin and the mug and everything, don't we? Therese shows us the little way. No wonder she's a saint. No wonder she's a doctor of the church. From Therese drew the insight that any act of love might contribute to the balance of love in the world. I wish I had hours with you because this is why I became a Catholic. I left my job. I was on the list to be a bishop to try to understand the church and it was vicarious love and suffering that brought me into the church. You know, so I went off to Cambridge and did a doctorate in vicarious suffering, you know, and that brought me into the church, the Catholic church. I was already a part of Christ's church, but into the Catholic church. And that acts of love we do contribute to the balance of love in the world. And any suffering endured in love might somehow mystically um, ease the burden of others. Have you heard that, offering it up? Do you know, can I say something now, as someone who's really thought about this? This is why I became Catholic. It's cheap in the Catholic Church, too cheap. I hear people, like they say, they trip up on the pavement, bash their nose, and they offer up their bashed nose for, for Aunt Lucy. I don't know if that's right. Because when I read the Gospels, when I read Paul, it's the suffering we actually intentionally take up, the cross we pick up and carry, for Christ, that is vicarious suffering. Not sort of arbitrarily bashing your nose, but actually I'm going to go there or I'm going to talk to that neighbour who's really cantankerous and difficult because, Lord, I feel you want me to. That's a suffering you can offer up, not the sort of stuff that happens. Let's get real about this discipleship. It's about Christian discipleship. It's wonderful. She represents a type of holiness that's not easily domesticated, perhaps of special relevance to our times, because she called the church to recover its fundamental identity as an offence and as a mystery in the eyes of the world. Her life was a living parable focused on what she called the mystery of the poor, that they are Jesus and what you do, you do for him. And she died on November the 29th. 1980. Thank God for Dorothy Day. Amen. Amen.